see the church. And we're looking at Acts 2.42, which describes the early devotional practices of the church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So in the past three weeks, Matt talked about the apostles' teaching and prayer. When Matt talked about the apostles' teaching, Matt pointed us back to the Bible to understand God's desperate love for humanity and how we as the church need to do a better job of expecting that love to our fellow man. When Matt talked about prayer, he also encouraged us to pray daily. So I don't know if you guys have been doing this over the past week, but just praying the Lord's prayer on a daily basis to see what happens. Um, I thought that was a great talk. And really the point of it is to keep God at the center of everything that we do, which is really supposed to be the goal of our Christian community here. Elliot talked about the importance of fellowship with God, with each other, and with the world at large, and the importance of balancing those three things. So today I'll be talking about the breaking of bread. And I think this is the perfect topic to wrap up this whole series about the spiritual disciplines of the church, because really breaking bread is the physical manifestation of all of these other practices of the apostles' teaching, of prayer, and of fellowshipping. So before I develop that thought, let's first define what we mean by breaking bread. So breaking bread can be defined in two ways. First of all, when we say we break bread together as a church, we may be talking about communion. So communion was a command given to us directly from Jesus. At the Last Supper, before Jesus was taken to be crucified, Matthew 26 talks about Jesus and his disciples sharing the Passover meal together. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we take communion together, we're remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us as the lamb who, whose blood cleanses us of all of our sin. In communion, we're also honoring the age-old Jewish tradition of the Passover dinner, which our Jewish brothers and sisters still, still celebrate and observe to this day. And they do this in remembrance of God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And this brings me to the second and broader definition of breaking bread. It's sharing a meal together, but it's also sharing life together. So with our modern lifestyles, we have this tendency sometimes to go from place to place and scarf down meals on the go. I know for me personally, I am sometimes guilty of working through lunch, which some would describe as sitting in my office watching YouTube by myself while eating leftovers. Some of us are intentional about having dinner with our families, and that's wonderful. And we always have holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas to remind us to slow down, to be grateful for the food that's in front of us, and to, be, to reflect on the experience that brought us to this place, the meal and what it signifies. For Jews throughout history since the time of Moses, the Passover dinner, also known as the Passover seder, has been one of the meals that captures what it means to be the people of God. So the modern Jewish Passover dinner, the seder, is such a beautiful tradition. It stems from Exodus 12, which talks about the night that the Jews fled from Egypt. It says, When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt 
and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So the entire purpose of the Passover Seder is to remember what God has done. Each of the elements of the meal is symbolic and reminds the Jews of what happened on that night when they fled from Egypt. At the Seder, someone reads from the Haggadah, from the Haggadah which is a set of prayers and scriptures for people to read and reflect on. A dinner is eaten, and again, all of the elements are symbolic. There's a roasted lamb, which represents the haste which, which, with which the Israelites left Egypt. They didn't have time to boil a lamb, so they roasted it, which was the quickest way of cooking it. They also eat matzah, which is unleavened bread, because they didn't have time to make hummus, which is leavened bread, because that would have taken more time, and they didn't have time before they needed to flee. They also eat carpets, which are vegetables that are dipped in salt water to remind them of the tears of the Jewish people while they were in slavery. They also eat mar, which are bitter herbs, to remind them of the bitterness of slavery, which are also dipped into a sauce. And then finally, this is ceremonial and I think added on later, but they drink from four cups of wine. And the significance of drinking from these four cups of wine is the family as a whole will recite what's called the manishtana, which are the four questions as they drink from each cup. And in this tradition, in accordance with Exodus 12, a younger member of the family will ask, why are we doing each of these things at the table? And then an older member will then explain what each of those elements means. And that's a form of scriptural instruction. And they have this entire meal while they're reclining. So we'll go through the questions right now. The questions can vary, but these are some common ones that are asked. Question. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights, we eat chametz and matzah. Why do we eat only matzah, unleavened bread, tonight? Answer, to remind us of the haste with which our ancestors left Egypt. Question, on all other nights, we eat all vegetables. Why do we eat only bitter herbs and these vegetables tonight? Answer, to remind us of the bitterness of slavery. Question, on all other nights, we don't dip the food even once. Why is the food dipped twice tonight? Answer, to remind us of our coming and going from Egypt. Joseph was brought into Egypt after his brothers sold him into slavery. And to cover their sin of what they had done, they took his coat off of him and they dipped it in goat's blood to cover up their, what they had done. On the night the Israelites left Egypt, they dipped a hyssop branch in lamb's blood and painted the blood on their doors to protect them from the angel of death. Question, on all other nights, we eat sometimes sitting and sometimes reclining. Why do we only recline tonight? Answer, to remind us of how free people relax. Slaves and servants stand during the meal. Free people recline while eating. So I've never personally in person been to a Passover center, so I had a hard time visualizing what, it visualizing what it looks like to recline while eating, like how do you drink and eat. So um, in case you're wondering too, here's a photo of a guy who totally owns this pose. Like, I kind of want to eat like that now, right? <laughs> so maybe next Passover. Anyway, um, Jesus echoed this Passover tradition at the Last Supper when he told his disciples to eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. We can probably take him down now. <laughs> he looks pretty cool, though. Only Jesus was establishing a new Passover tradition in which his body is served in place of the sacrificial lamb. The thing is, though, 
Jesus didn't just demonstrate his table manners at the Last Supper. The book of Luke recounts at least 10 different times that Jesus shared a meal with people. And two of those times happened after he was crucified and rose from the grave. Now that is dedication to fellowshipping with people while eating a meal. So the book of Luke highlights just how crucial breaking bread was to Jesus's ministry. Um, we don't have time to go through each and every one of the meals that Jesus shared with people. So we can examine the common themes though. First of all, at each meal, Jesus begins by praying over the food and thanking God for the food. He does this whether he's dining with Pharisees, dining with tax collectors and sinners, or standing in front of a crowd of 5,000 people who are hungry. At every meal, Jesus eats in fellowship with others. He never eats alone, as far as we can see in the book of Luke. And at every meal, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach those who are there about the kingdom of God. When Jesus dines with a Pharisee and a sinful woman, comes and washes his feet with her tears, the Pharisee is disgusted. But Jesus takes this opportunity to tell the Pharisee about the parable of the two debtors, in which one person owes a debt and another person owes a much greater debt. And the fact is that the person who owes the much greater debt loved God more. Verses 37 through 41 say, oh, sorry, I skipped something. <laughs> um, in Luke 11, a Pharisee invites Jesus to dine with him. So verses 37 through 41 say, when Jesus had finished speaking, and again, this is a different time, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table, once again. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside also make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus goes on to admonish the Pharisees, the very people who are hosting him for dinner. One of the teachers of the law even says to Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law! Can you imagine inviting someone out of politeness that you don't particularly like to a dinner, only to have that person insult you and your entire profession? Ouch. It's like having, inviting the extended family over for Thanksgiving dinner, and there's that one Thea, maybe, that you just do not get along with. Sometimes she says things about the meal, sometimes she says things about you. But as the host, you have to grin and bear it. You get through it. Maybe you complain about that Thea to a sympathetic family member. But then the next year comes around, and then you invite that same person to your house again. Because that's what it means to be family. So here's the thing. While meals are not supposed to be a place to bring up conflict, they certainly can be a source of conflict. People have different opinions about what makes a good meal. For some, like for me, a decent meal is a protein, some veggies, and a grain. For other people, a meal should be an experience. There should be an aperitif, a dessertif, a dessert. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly even. You know, it's easy to criticize a meal when you're not the one preparing it. But for the one who's preparing the meal, they can sometimes feel resentful because they don't feel like they're getting the help that they need. People even have different opinions about what constitutes good table manners. When I was a kid at a mostly white elementary school, we had this lesson um, from someone I think named Miss Manners where she talked about how to place the table settings in the proper place. The forks go here, spoons go here, 
Maxis here. For me, it was like learning a foreign language that I was never going to use. Thai people only eat with spoons. Like this whole idea of forks and knives, like in my household growing up, the only reason to have a fork on the table was so you could shovel the food onto your spoon before you ate. And then there are cultures in the world that eat with their hands, which is very different from what we do here. Miles and I visited a friend in our state, in a, a state in the eastern part of India. And it's pretty customary there to eat curry with your hands. And with your right hand, and I'm left-handed, so you can imagine. It was just really difficult for me. Um, I either ended up asking for a spoon each time, or I ended up getting food all over my face in my lap. And I think it was just a perfect metaphor for the awkwardness of trying to connect across cultures. And awkwardness isn't necessarily a bad thing. Awkwardness challenges us to recognize the limitations of our own perspective. In this way, sharing a meal with others, particularly those whose backgrounds are different from ours, is part of the, how God shapes us as Christians and helps us to become more compassionate and empathetic towards people who are different from us in this world. Acts chapter 10 tells the story of how the Apostle Peter, while waiting to have lunch with his fellow Jews, falls into a trance and then receives a vision from God. In that trance, Acts 10 says, He saw heaven being opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Probably not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens two more times, and then the vision ends. Immediately after this, Peter is called to go to the house of a Gentile, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Through this vision, God was calling Peter to accept the invitation to be a guest at Cornelius' house, in the house of a Gentile who Peter in the past would have regarded as an enemy. At Cornelius' house, Peter breaks bread with this Gentile in his household as if they were friends. He then tells them the story of how Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. Jesus even talks about how, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Peter personally ate and drank with him to show how real this really was. Through this experience of Peter living life, fellowshipping, breaking bread with Cornelius' family, of praying and preaching to his family, Cornelius' family was transformed. It says that the Holy Spirit came on all of those who heard this story. And not only was Cornelius' family transformed, Peter was transformed as well. He had previously viewed the Gentiles with hostility, but now he understood how truly radical Jesus' teaching was when he said, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The table sometimes can be where we hash out our differences, but we also recognize the fact that in the end, we all eat and we all worship the one shepherd. So do you ever get the question, do you eat to live or live to eat? I fall strictly into the eat to live category. Like if I had the choice of never having to eat again, if I could just take a pill that provided all of my dietary needs for the day, I would totally take it. When Miles goes on weekend trips with the girls sometimes, like I will sometimes just like fall down suddenly, dizzy, and realize like I haven't eaten this whole weekend because it just is not a priority for me, was never a priority for me growing up. Like, I honestly can't remember ever sharing a meal with my family when I was growing up, when I was at home. 
One of the few times I remember actually sharing a meal with them is when we would go to temple. My parents are Buddhist. They sent me to a Christian school for reasons I still don't fully understand. So I was raised knowing God. And so I wouldn't exactly call myself a Christian. I was familiar with all the Bible stories. I prayed and I truly believed that there was a God. And I just couldn't reconcile this idea of Buddhism with my understanding of there being the one true God. In any case, my parents are still Buddhist. And a couple times a year, we'd go to the Thai Buddhist temple in North Hollywood. So if we can get a picture up here, just so everyone gets a visual. This is where I spent a lot of my Saturdays, like full Saturdays growing up. This is Wat Thai, also known as the Thai temple. So my parents would do their worship inside the sanctuary there. And I would stand there and I would stubbornly refuse to bow down to an idol. I was a Christian, so I thought. I would think about the prophet Daniel and how as a young man, he refused to eat food that was offered to idols because he didn't want to defile himself. And I knew that God would give me strength to do the same. My parents would finish giving their offering and we'd head out of the sanctuary, down the stairs, behind those big ogre statues, and then down behind that red fence, downstairs into the basement of the temple. Now, the basement of the temple was like if someone had taken a Bangkok street food market and crammed it into someone's cellar. Like when as soon as you walked inside of there, you could feel all the pores of your face open up and all this grease seeping into it. It was hot. It was humid. It violated numerous health codes. I think they even shut it down now. And it smelled amazing in there. I would just hold in my resolve, you know, I'm not going to eat any food given to idols. And then my parents would hand me a plate of sticky rice and grilled meat, and all of my resolve would go flying out the window, and I'd chow down. And you know, I felt guilty as I was eating, but man, that food was so good. As an adult, I was able to reconcile these feelings of guilt by realizing, number one, the food was probably not offered to idols before it was given to me. And then number two, the story of Peter's vision of the unclean animals on the blanket means that what goes into my body is not what makes me unclean. It's my heart, and as long as my heart is with God, I'm okay. So I say all this to tell you that this was my context for breaking bread when I was growing up. The few times that my family and I ate together, it was when we prayed, me to my God and them to theirs. We spent time together, and we learned about the teachings of the Buddha. It was kind of like a Buddhist version of the Passover Seder, if you will. So now as an adult Christian, my family and I will praise before the meal, we'll spend time together, and we'll talk about the Bible? No. Uh, usually we just spend time together, talk about our day, or we'll watch TV together. I think most of us have a pretty good handle on meals as a time to pray together and to connect. But what I want to challenge us to think about is how we can use mealtime as an opportunity to teach each other about scripture. I know this sounds really forced and churchy, and does not sound organic at all. But in all of the examples of biblical meals that we've looked at today, it's pretty clear that teaching each other about scripture is very clearly a part of God's intention for mealtime. So one idea that I had for us bringing more scripture into mealtime, which I have yet to discuss with Miles, um, is possibly to create a jar of Bible verses and then put that into a jar. And then each night, each member of our family can pull out piece of paper, read that Bible verse, and then as a family we can discuss what it means. How about you? Can you think of any ideas? Do you have any ideas for how you can bring scripture into mealtime more? If you do have any, I would love to hear your thoughts. 
and if you guys could share them with each other, i think that would be so instructive for our church.